The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. There were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he told this parable. The man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, before I went into ministry, I was an English teacher uh, for a short time, uh, and I was headed on a path to get a PhD. Um, and uh, I had a particular mentor that I wanted to work with, that I was going to work with, um, and he was in New Hampshire. Uh, University of New Hampshire, and um, I, I did a little bit of studying with him up there. And the year between when I was going to start the PhD uh, and that research with him, uh, he got a, a, a job at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona, uh, which meant that I had to go to Arizona State University if I wanted to study under him. And I love New Hampshire. It has trees. When you fly into Tempe, Arizona, it looks like you're f landing on Mars. I mean, you look out and it's just, uh, you know, red desert. Um, and so I moved there sight unseen. Um, and there were a lot of other things going on in my life. I started to have, I was, I was falling in love with my now wife. We were in a relationship. She lived in Washington, D.C. I was living in Tempe, Arizona. Um, I started having a tug on my heart that I thought like God was calling me to ministry and what was I doing moving to Arizona to start this PhD program and by the way it's 118 degrees outside and no shade um, and uh, so I had to make a decision um, and I had for every for about the six seven years prior to that everything was leading up to this PhD studies that's what I staked my identity on, and here I was second-guessing what I was doing, um, and I decided to leave. Um, I decided to leave the PhD program and move to Washington, D.C. to be closer uh, to Holly, uh, but it was no easy decision. I mean, it literally took like two months of constant uh, racking, you know, just thinking about what does this mean? Uh, the embarrassment of uh, sort of deciding that this isn't what I'm going to do anymore, uh, the sort of dealing with the pride that I had to overcome, admission of failure, um, and uneasiness of turning all of a sudden uh, in an unanticipated direction um, that I was no longer going to stake my identity on becoming a professor, but something else. And honestly, uh, 
my coming to Christian faith not too long before that felt quite similar. Just like that emotion of, of changing direction uh, and no longer going toward this PhD. Uh, I became a Christian in my mid-20s and it was, uh, I had similar emotions. This, this turn, this embarrassment, um, the dealing with the pride. That was the biggest thing for me. I was constantly thinking about that word pride. And what did I mean by it? My own strength. You know, I, I staked everything up until that moment on, into my own strength. And a lot of it had to do with education, the identity, the getting of all the degrees, and someday being called doctor. If I'd stuck with it, I'd be Dr. Matt by now. Uh, instead, I get to wear this silly collar, and uh, people accost me on the street. Um, and that's great. I love it. Um, but, you know, I mean, the coming to faith really was a lot like that turn when I decided not to get the Ph.D. at Arizona State University, uh, an admission of, of weakness and not strength. Uh, Bono said, and I think he's right, that the guiding sort of myth of the world is one of karma. Uh, that most of the world is built on, uh, and I don't know the full depth of the philosophy of karma, but at least in terms of the simplistic idea that you reap what you sow, that good things happen to good thing, pe uh, good people who put out goodness, and bad things happen to bad people who put out badness. Bono from U2 said that all the world is basically built around this idea, that you reap what you sow, whether positive or negative. But uh, Jesus Christ upends all of that. And we see that here in the passage that we read today when he's approaching Jerusalem. Jesus tells the story of Pilate killing a group during worship. And then he tells uh, another story of another group who died uh, when the Tower of Siloam suddenly fell on them, 18 of these people. And then he asks about these two different groups and their tragic deaths. He asks, do you think these people were worse offenders than everyone else? Did this happen because they were bad or deserving of the punishment, basically? Is that why they died? And he answers his own rhetorical question, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's basically saying they're no worse than any of you. Um, that's just what happened in this random act of the tower falling on them or Pilate choosing these people and not others. But it has nothing to do with their goodness or badness per se that all people are basically evenly distributed in their, in their badness. And so he answers, unless you repent, you will likewise perish in terms of an eternal perspective. Now, there are two things that you need to understand. And, and go with me. You might, you might be thinking, Matt's turning into a fire and brimstone uh, preacher today. That's unusual. Just stick with me for a while. Okay, there are two things that you need to understand in terms of what Jesus Christ is talking about here. Christianity assumes uh, uh, a horrific nature of all people, everyone, 100%. The Christian worldview assumes a horrific human nature in all of us, in me, in you, and everyone else in the world. And also, the second thing you need to understand is that the one true God is indeed a God of wrath, uh, and his judgment is final. Now, if we're all, in terms of badness, evenly distributed, and God is a God of wrath, and his, his judgment is final, then we're all doomed. We're all doomed, because he looks upon our badness, 
and he will uh, he will strike down with his judgment and his wrath. And we often uh, confuse Jesus as being meek and mild. You know, that's the uh, sentimental phrase that Jesus is meek and mild. But as Mark Galley, who's the uh, editor of Christianity Today, said in his book, uh, Jesus mean and wild. Jesus mean and wild. He says that Jesus is, uh, off, he often makes people uncomfortable if you actually pay attention to these stories. He's not meek and mild, but mean and wild, going around making people uncomfortable, telling stories like the one that we just read. Uh, before he talks about Pilate and the Tower of Siloam, Jesus explains the divisive nature of his ministry when he says, Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. From now on, uh, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. Now, you know, this actually happened to me when I first professed uh, Christian identity. I felt like it was, uh, it was so strange. Things were coming my way. Like, I wasn't going around saying I was a Christian, but it was almost like God was supernaturally putting people in my life uh, to confront me with this identity. Are you really, uh, are you really a Christian? Because I, w- I was at a bachelor party, for example, and no one knew I was a Christian there. And all of a sudden, and, and this is in Northern California where no one ever really thought about Christianity in my life beforehand, all of a sudden this bachelor party, everybody was bashing on Christians. And I was standing there thinking, none of these guys know my new identity. This was a house divided. It wasn't two against three or three against two. It was like 15 against one. And here I was standing there, the lone person, wanting to raise my hand and be like, hey, guys, um, uh, can we cool it? Uh, but I didn't. I didn't because uh, I was afraid of, of what they would think. I later told them, but not in the moment. Uh, and this is the dividing line of uh, faith in Jesus Christ. The dividing line in faith Uh, he equates with repentance. Uh, In this story, Jesus says that faith is repentance, and that is the the dividing line. That is the thing that puts two against three and three against two, or a a mother against son, or daughter against mother-in-law, as he later goes on to say, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That faith is equated with repentance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And what is repentance but an admission that we are all bad, uh, that we are all weak, we are all prideful, and we are all in need of absolute help and rescue. And thus, if karma is true, we're all doomed. We're all doomed if this idea of karma is true. And so the question is, who will deliver us? Who will deliver us from this world where if you put out badness, badness comes back to you? Who will deliver us? The bad news of the gospel is that uh, we're all basically the same, that no one is righteous. You have to understand the sort of the the quote-unquote bad news before you get to the good news. You have to come to grips with the fact that as the Bible says in both the Psalms and in St. Paul, no one is righteous, no, not one across the board. Human nature is evenly distributed, and therefore we're all deserving of complete annihilation. But the good news, the good news, the refreshing bit, the positive, 
uh, the, the hope that you came for came here for this evening. I'm not uh, at the end firing <laughs> uh, The good news of the gospel is that God deals with this unrighteousness in Himself through Jesus Christ for us. And uh, as a as a hymn I've been listening to says, all the fitness He requires is to feel our need of Him. All the fitness He requires is simply this to feel our need for him, uh, to repent. But you know what? It feels terrible. It feels terrible. Remember me in Tempe, Arizona. That's what it feels like. Those two months in which I was sort of back and forth in my mind about, do I do this or not? You know, do I stake my identity in Dr. Schneider? uh, Or do I stake it in something else? That that was an idol. I um I took a trip to England a few years ago and I went to Coventry, uh, uh, which is a working class town primarily. Um, a lot like they don't say Birmingham over they say they say Bur- Bur- Birmingham. Uh, Coventry is a lot like Birmingham in, in England. You know, working class town and they have a cathedral there. Uh, and during World War II, it was destroyed by uh, the the German air force gas bombing the city. And this old historic Gothic uh, cathedral was pretty much destroyed except for the exterior walls, which are still standing. And this was uh, a building at the top of the hill that people would have saw their whole lives. Uh, They would have heard the bells ringing every single day. And so the decision was made not just to leave the, 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 the cathedral walls standing there, but to rebuild a new cathedral adjacent to it, which I went to. And it was an amazing experience. When you go to the new Coventry Cathedral in England, when you walk in, if you're sitting like where you are facing the altar, and you have to imagine it's a massive building, much bigger than this, bigger than our own nave over there. When you're sitting in the, in the chairs facing the altar, you see this cold, sterile, brutalist building, you know, concrete architecture uh, that's basically really ugly. Um, and the, the way it's set up is there are stained glass windows, but the walls kind of go at an angle like this. So when you're facing the altar, you can't see them. But when you go up like this to take communion and you turn around, you see nothing but resplendent beauty of the stained glass and pure contrast of that brutalist architecture that you saw when you're facing uh, the, um, the, the altar when you're sitting in the chairs. Uh, this is basically how I felt when I decided to leave Arizona State University, like facing that cold, concrete, brutalist architecture in the face, almost holding up a mirror to me. That's how I felt when I came to Christian faith, looking at those stone walls that offered no sense of real everlasting hope. But when I finally made that decision to leave Tempe, when I made that decision to leave the sort of the, the false idolatry of the staking my identity in things like titles and education, when I turned around, I saw the stained glass. I mean, it was like that in an emotional sense. Um, the, the, the future hope of redemption, uh, of acknowledging the fact that uh, I'm not good enough but I have my goodness in him, offered the, the hope. And the, the beauty of our Anglican worship services is it's, it's, it's 
soaked with repentance material, and especially during Lent. You know, when we read things like the Ten Commandments, the reason I put that at the beginning of the service is to bring us to our knees, to come to grips with this idea that, uh, Lord, have mercy upon us and write all these laws in our hearts. We beseech you, we beg you, Lord, have mercy upon us. In the beginning, to bring us down, to humble us, to humiliate us, but the service doesn't end there. The service ends uh, with things like taking communion, receiving God's mercy and grace, and so this, ser- this sermon today, and we don't often have this in the Episcopal Church, is basically an altar call. It's basically an altar call. Today we're going to take communion. The Episcopal Church has an altar call any time it celebrates communion because Deborah will stand here and she'll say, the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And what will you do? You'll stand up and come to this altar and know that although uh, you, uh, your human nature is not... 100% good, but in fact has badness inside of it, that Jesus Christ intervened on our behalf and received that mercy. And when you turn around and go back to your seat, uh, just think of Coventry Cathedral. Uh, what you'll see are two former uh, music ministers. Ignore that. Um, and imagine the resplendent beauty of that stained glass, the, the future hope that we have of restoration in Jesus Christ in spite of ourselves. Amen.